Let's pray. God, we sing of your love and grace and mercies. And we also correspondingly this morning sing of our trust for you. And Lord, Lord, we recognize the times in which it's easy for us to sing about our trust, to proclaim it in song, but to struggle to trust. Lord, we trust. Help our lack of trust. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We pray this morning that you'd help it by your spirit, showing us the cross of Christ, putting it not just on display for us, Lord, but helping us see how it changes everything. Help us apply it. Help us repent. Help us turn to you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so one of the most tragic, difficult, and also hope-filled biographies I've ever read comes from the life of the 18th century poet, lived in like the late 1700s, named uh, William Cooper, also a, a hymn writer for the life of the church. Despite being, you know, relatively unknown today, if I talk with people about William Cooper today, most most people don't know who I'm talking about. Cooper spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, if you want to look up more about him later. Um, but despite most people not knowing who he is today, he was the, one of the most popular po- poets of his time, changing the direction of 18th century poetry by writing and incorporating the events of everyday life and into his poetry. He's considered today to be one of the forerunners of the romance genre in poetry, romantic poetry. And yet, in his own time, he was also considered to be a forerunner. You know, artists, authors, a lot of times these people are underappreciated in their time. And, you know, most people during their time didn't hear of them or, or if they did know them, they were um, not thought much of. But then a historian comes along later on and they say, oh, wow, okay. You know, he, he, he said this or he did this and look at how it influenced the genre that he wrote in, the kind of art that he uh, produced and he made a real contribution. That's true about Cooper, but he was also recognized during his time by his peers in this kind of way. He wrote anti-slavery poems. He wrote in support of the abolitionist movement alongside of his friend John Newton. About 175 years later, he would be often quoted by the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. during the Civil Rights Movement. He and his friend John Newton wrote a lot of hymns for the life of the church. Some of these hymns we sing together here at Gospel Life. Cooper's life in this respect, it reads like any other kind of life of a great person from within the context of church history, and yet none of that takes into account the manner in which, he, the way in which he made this contribution, what he was facing into during this time. So Cooper was institutionalized for serious mental health issues that plagued him throughout his life. He was actually diagnosed uh, with insanity, And he was institutionalized. His his early biographers, biographers who lived both during his time and shortly after, referred to him as Mad Cooper. He was was a believer in Jesus who wrestled with real and serious doubt. 
He was plagued with horrible dreams in which he frequently felt condemned. Including one particular dream that he had on one night that caused him to believe for a short period of time. that was really tempting for him to believe afterward that he was no longer loved by God at all. Because of the nature of the dream. He was plagued not only with depression, severe depression, but a kind of depression with which and for which he had to be routinely hospitalized and institutionalized. And yet in the midst of this mental health crisis, you find some of his most powerful contributions to the life of the church. During one particular dark season of his life, he penned these words. He said, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Genesis 37, and moving forward, after reading this chapter, it would be easy for the characters in this narrative and for first-time readers of this narrative to see what's going on and respond to it with blind unbelief. How could God let this happen? Scanning his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain by chapter 50. This is the theme of the text that we're about to continue on in Genesis because it can be easy as Christians to grow angry with God, with what he allows, with how he directs. Outside of, you know, modern objections about how a good God could allow evil, there are times and seasons in which we as believers can grow frustrated with God because of what appear to be unfulfilled promises, circumstances that for understandable reasons are particularly painful, How could God have such a bitter-tasting and frowning purpose for us? How could the providence of a loving God allow for difficulty and hardship? Cooper spent a lifetime wrestling with these questions. And in this lifetime, he would say he does not have a clear answer. And this is where our narrative now takes us. As we open our Bibles to Genesis 37, here's what we find right away. In the transitional verse, uh, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning. In the land of Canaan. So we have this hinge verse between everything that we've read uh, in the Jacob and Esau narratives. You know, we start 37 and you read the word Jacob to start with. And you're like, no, we have to keep learning about Jacob. Aren't we done with this yet? Uh, we are, we are. We're moving on. So it's a transition verse that takes us from all these narratives with Jacob and Esau. And moving us into this next section of Joseph and, as we'll see, Judah. But we shouldn't skip over verse 1 without noticing the context it gives us for the chapter this morning and for everything that happens moving forward. Because here you find Jacob back in the promised land, but he's still a sojourner. 
like his father Isaac. And, in fact, that's exactly how the story of Jacob started. When Isaac, uh, when Abraham died, and Isaac was back in the promised land, and it said he was a sojourner like his father. We have this repeated theme of God's people waiting on the promises. They're still not complete. They're waiting and sojourning. You probably remember me saying this just a few short weeks ago. This is why the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 refers to the patriarchs as aliens and strangers in the world. So there's the sense right from the beginning of the chapter, right, that God in his providence has not yet completed his promises to his people. His guiding and saving, uh, he's, he's guiding and saving his people. We're seeing guiding and saving continually by his promises. He's fulfilling, he's coming to, to fulfill parts of his promise through his people, but they haven't been brought yet to complete fulfillment. Jacob waits in the promised land as an outsider. Just as Isaac waited as an outsider. Just as Abraham waited as an outsider. Not seen by the surrounding nation as one who holds rightful claim. And so, this chapter, right, uh, starts with a question. How long is this going to continue? How long will God's people live with unfulfilled promises? How long will they continue to live as outsiders in the land? How long until the Lord brings them into the land in such a way that it makes it it makes it theirs by right. And maybe even more importantly in the text, given the circumstances, how could God possibly achieve this? How could he possibly do this? Just as William Cooper wrote about everyday events, right? he incorporated everyday events into the life of his poetry and demonstrated God's providence in everyday events. We see that here. We see the outworking of God's promises in everyday providences. That would be the title for the sermon for today. Outworking of God's promises in everyday providences. It's almost as though God intentionally puts himself throughout Genesis, right? And throughout this narrative in particular, in these seemingly impossible situations, in order to show his people that we can indeed take fresh courage. We can indeed trust him for his grace. All right, and this is where we see in the narrative itself. So, how does he do it? Well, we see three sections in the story that will show it to us to start out with, right? This is the theme really moving forward. This um, outworking of God's promises and everyday providences, that's like Genesis 37 to the end of the book, okay? But for today's narrative, how do we see this happening? Well, three sections from the problem that kind of kicks the whole thing off and begins this rising, it causes this rising tension to sort of the peak of that tension. And then Something of, well, at least for the shorter narrative, a resolution here. The first part of the narrative that we see that points to the outworking of God's promises and everyday providences is the problem of partiality. The problem of partiality. It's one that we've seen before, and I told you there's this other big example looming on the horizon, and now we've arrived uh, at verses 2 through 11. Here's where we see the primary conflict in the text. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. They made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. 
and could not speak peacefully to him. Okay, so stopping there for a minute. The author of Genesis is about to devote really significantly more time to Joseph than almost any other character in all of Genesis. Maybe with Abraham as the closest rival. But even in the Abrahamic narratives, it, it departs from Abraham enough wherein for the rest of Genesis, we're pretty much with Joseph for the rest of the time. There's just tons of time, tons of pages and words dedicated to Joseph. And so um, as he does that, he begins this time by sharing a number of important details with the reader. So about Joseph to start with. He's 17 years old. 17, okay. It's considerably younger than the other brothers that are in this narrative, okay. He's um, a shepherd of his father's sheep. He's had run-ins with his brothers in the past. Verse 2 says, when he was younger, Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers to his father. So there's already some tension between them, you know, in the narrative before any of this begins. Uh, And to make matters worse, outside of just some of the normal sibling rivalry that you get, like the tattling on one another. Like, we read that section of Joseph brought a bad report to his father about his brothers and like, you know, it's pretty common. I've received many a bad report from some of my children about other children, right? But you have that problem really from within a bigger problem that fuels the envy behind the pages of the narrative. Like there's something else going on here. It's the bigger problem of partiality. We've seen it already in several different ways, you know, like you've seen partiality in, in this structure of polygamy, favoritism and envy and jealousy that develops from within this polygamous relationship. And the author, the reason that he shares all that destructiveness that polygamy causes is because he wants to make sure to subvert it and say, no, this isn't God's intention for marriage. That's not what it's supposed to look like, right? And in the same way, now the partiality that was shown to Rachel is given to Joseph. We saw hints of that, you know, when Esau's men were approaching Jacob and he was fleeing, you know, and he, knew, he knows that Esau's uh, going to confront him. What does he do with Joseph and, and Rachel? He puts them at the back, very back of the par- caravan, signaling a little more love for them than for the others. And the author tells us, so in the same way Jacob uh, loved Rachel more he, he, and, and, and showed favoritism, and partiality, he shows that same partiality toward Joseph. Born to him from Rachel, born to him in his old age, Jacob loves Joseph the most. And just as we saw destructiveness of partiality and polygamy, we see even more uh, destructiveness, at least in this text, between brothers when partiality is given from a father to his children. It gets to ridiculous levels. Like we've talked before about how Jacob, you know, he doesn't have a ton of likable traits as a character in Genesis. As we go through, it's like, man, um, there are moments in the context of even his own relationship w- within his family where he just doesn't seem to have a clue with how to deal with things. And it makes you angry as you read it. So we've, we've talked through some of this. Here we have him imparting expensive gifts to Jacob, but not the other boys. Translated here as the robe of many colors. You know, probably translates more specifically like richly ornamented robe. In other words, yeah, probably many colors. Probably very long, very very um, luxurious, you know. Something that was, it was something for people to see, you know. 
And this robe in verse 3 almost becomes a symbol, you know, this outward symbol of Jacob's partiality for everyone to kind of see. It's on full display now. We'll see it repeatedly returned to, this robe of many colors in the chapter. And so here you have the problem of partiality. And even if you, even if you struggle with, you know, okay, that's pretty vague. Well, here you have this tangible picture of it, but almost as if to demonstrate how that root problem can grow and grow and grow. Now we have problems compiling upon problems. So starting in verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to him, this is just, it's one of those passages in scripture that's almost humorous to picture taking place, you know. Joseph's coming to his brothers, okay. He says to them, hear this dream I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bound down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, if you say behold, one more time. No, they said, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he had told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves down on the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So, you know, almost as a sub-point from within this main first point of the problem of partiality we have this we have this bragging between brothers that under normal circumstances maybe would be considered just annoying but i think these aren't normal circumstances and we'll obviously see here that joseph's dreams that he has in the text and there's not only is there nothing wrong with the dreams themselves but this is the guiding hand of the lord like these are foreshadowing for us i don't i don't want to give it away but this is foreshadowing for us what's going to happen. And there's no way for us to understand the chapter unless we understand that what he's predicting will happen here is actually what's going to happen as we move forward, right? Joseph's dreams that he has in the text aren't because of some delusions of grandeur on his part, but rather because of a narrative uh, being foreshadowed that the Lord is showing us, like, this is what's, this is what's actually going to happen. It's actually going to occur without question. And ultimately, you know, these dreams, as we'll see, they don't, they don't point to Joseph. Ultimately, they point to Judah in the text. And even, even more ultimately, they point to one who would come from Judah's line. All right? So there's nothing wrong with the dreams. But perhaps we can question the wisdom of 17-year-old Joseph in sharing the dreams so boldly with his brothers. You know, you just sort of imagining him, like, coming in from the field and putting on the nice robe. And sitting down, you know, with the guys, I gotta tell you this, you know. Um, I gotta tell you this dream I just had. In any case, for anyone who's had brothers or sisters, we all know this kind of dialogue happens. It can it can be difficult, it can be annoying. But the problem of partiality compiles it into hatred in the text. The hatred that is now felt by the other brothers who are already feeling the rejection of their father now causes them to zero their hatred in in an even more specific way onto Joseph. So in the midst of their hatred, they ask these ironic questions in a mocking kind of way. Because they recognize that the bowing down signals some kind of royalty, some kind of uh, kingship, 
And so they say, will you really be king? Will you actually rule over us? It's like this mockery that begins to happen. Even, you know, Joseph's persistence to sharing the dreams eventually is too much even for his own father to, to handle. And it says that Jacob even rebukes him. But these introductory verses that we see uh, show us the problem of partiality. Then the question is, what's to be done about it? You know, so there's the, this rising tension. How does it get resolved? Well, this is where we see, secondly, the plot for punishment. Okay, so there's, there's some kind of punishment that needs to be doled out here from the perspective of the brothers. So starting at verse 12. Now his brothers went to, the, to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They've gone Away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So what would have been a pretty routine and short trip from Hebron to Shechem becomes a very long trip in order to fulfill the words of his father. Okay, So uh, rather than something in which Jacob could have expected to see his son much sooner, now it's going to be a, a longer trip. And, and the, the brothers realize this. It says in verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of, out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into to this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And then it, the text tells us why Reuben said that that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him out of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. So we see the setup starting in verse 15 for this whole thing. Because, well, you know, the setup starts with Jacob sending him, which seems a little tone deaf. Like maybe he should realize that that's not the safest scenario for uh, Joseph to be in. But so he sends him. Uh, and then there's this further setup in verse 15 because the brothers aren't where Joseph expects to find them. He has to walk further out. And so now they can see him coming from quite a distance. And it's in between seeing him on the horizon and the length of time that they know it's going to take for him to make it to them that the text tells us that they plotted against him or they conspired against him. The pattern of this narrative, by the way, is going to be repeated later on. So when we get to, the, to future narratives, you're going to see something similar in which there's plotting and conspiring where one party knows more than the other parties. And the reason that the author is doing that uh, is that he, he's weaving that structure into these everyday events in order to show us that all along it's been the Lord doing these things. Okay? I can't stress that enough as we work through this that the author's trying to say, this is the Lord at work. This is the Lord at work. Okay? So in any case, the text discloses both two things, the details and the motivation for the plot. Okay? First, let's look at the motivation. They reference these dreams as the reason they want to they do this. And it's going to be important for us to remember you know, that the proclamation 
of these two dreams of all of them bowing down to Joseph is what kicks off all these events. And that's what's listed as their main motivation. They hated him for it, right? And so they seek to, to kick off all of these events that are about to happen because of these dreams. And these events are what will lead to them bowing down to Joseph. All right? So the very plans of the schemers out of anger at these dreams will lead to the fulfillment of the dreams themselves. As Salheimer writes at this point, he says, In every detail of the narrative, the writer's purpose shows through. That is to demonstrate the truthfulness of Joseph's final words to his brothers. You intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good. And we'll see how in the weeks ahead. So in terms of the details, that's the motivation. It's the dreams. It's pretty ironic. In terms of the detail, there's not much there. You know, there, at least for this first plan, it's pretty ad hoc. You know, it's kind of contrived at the last minute. They intend simply to kill him, throw his body into a pit, tell his dad that he was killed by a wild animal. And once again, we see that the, the brothers reiterate their motivation at the end of verse 20. And I want you to think about this. So they're saying, oh, you'll be king, will you? You'll be one who we bow down to. All right, well, how about we kill you? Then, you'll, then we'll see what becomes of your dreams. All right, that's the motivation. That initial plan is brought to a halt initially by Reuben, who seems to have a heightened sense of responsibility for his little brother. Though he doesn't actually save Joseph as well as he could have, he does, at least in the moment, intervene. He says, look, we're not killing anyone. Just throw him into the pit and leave him here and be done with it. And the text tells us the intention is to come back, pull his brother out, deliver him back to his dad. So Joseph finally arrives, strip him of his robe, reminding us of the problem of partiality, this problem that they faced into from the very beginning, this conflict faced by the, the dad loving him more than others. So they strip him of this robe, problem of partiality, and listening to Reuben, they throw him into the pit, the plot for punishment. And Reuben thinks he's saved Joseph, while also maybe teaching him something of a lesson but it's not actually Reuben who saves him. Because here we see finally a providential proposal. It's by Judah. Judah is actually the one who really intervenes to, to save, though I'll explain what I mean. So starting in verse 25. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carrying it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt... When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was no longer, was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood. They sent the robe of many colors uh, and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an official 
and an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So up until this point, they've listened to Reuben. But the story takes its most significant turn yet. Up to this point, when these traveling Ishmaelites show up on the scene, carrying spices on their way down to Egypt. And this is now where Judah enters these narratives for the very first time in a vocal kind of way, making a suggestion that actually does save Joseph. There does seem to be still some murderous rumblings going on amongst the brothers. And it does actually save Joseph from that, though there's no evidence in the text that Judah's doing it out of compassion or right or good reasons, but it's what happens. His suggestion, his, his providential proposal is that rather than letting Joseph die in the pit, eventually killing uh, him themselves, they should sell him. Oh, you're headed down to Egypt to trade spices? Let me give you something better to trade. That way we make some money and he stays alive. We don't have his blood on our hands, okay? And so they sell him for 20 shekels of silver and they take him to Egypt. When Reuben, who honestly for some stupid reason has stepped away from all this, this is part I don't, I don't understand. When he returns to the pit, he doesn't seem see Joseph, and he freaks out. Why'd you, why'd you leave him there? Anyways, he freaks out, and they continue in their scheming to deceive their father by dipping the symbol of his favoritism and partiality into the blood of a slaughtered goat, presenting it to their father. And it's interesting because here again, we see just how good Jacob's sons have gotten at learning the family business of deception. Uh, that their father had mastered in their young life and that they really, they almost seem to be one-upping him at several points along in these narratives. Not only has the apple not fallen very far from the tree, but it seems to have sprouted into a much larger one uh, in a lot of ways as it relates to deception. I mean, let's not forget that Jacob himself came before his father in an attempt to willfully deceive him out of something significant uh, many chapters ago, and now his sons are doing that to him. Meanwhile, Joseph is well on his way to Egypt, being sold to an officer of Pharaoh that we're going to hear about more in, in, in the coming narratives, in weeks ahead. And all of, so all of this on a first, so that's the chapter, that's the chapter. And all of this on a first reading of Genesis can be really confusing and hard to understand. Like, how could this be for anyone's good? This is a tragic chapter to read that I think only... Uh, tends to become not tragic because we've read it so many times. How could God's promises remain? Has to be a question that's being asked by the first readers of Genesis 37. Isn't God's promise in jeopardy yet again when the sons of the patriarch are either sold off in Egyptian slavery or lying slave traders at best, murderers at worst? It's not a good situation, especially since we're still in the same situation that we were in with Isaac. Jacob's just in the land as a sojourner. How's God going to change this when these are the circumstances? But God accomplishes his promises even as the nations rage. We won't say too much about where the story's headed. We're going to spend more time unpacking exactly how this happens. I'm not going to preach Genesis 37 to 50 this morning, okay? But look. It's undoubtedly true that God is working in Genesis 37 and that in that, by demonstrating over and over again that, listen, this is the Lord at work. In his purposes, this is the Lord at work. Everyday providences, this is the Lord at work. In that, 
we can start to see this, this biblical doctrine that God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing, of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So we see where those stanzas come from in terms of biblical theology, but then we have to ask, right? Like, and I think... William Cooper intended for us to ask of his poem. At that point in the stanza, we have to ask, is the outworking of that sovereign will good? So, okay, so God's a sovereign God. He will have his way, but is he good? If so, how can we know? And that's where we see where, where and how Joseph and Judah will direct us in the story. After proclaiming what God had revealed to him, the favored son, Joseph, was rejected by his brothers, sold for pieces of silver, had his clothes ripped off and his blood stained, presented to his father, that in the end his brothers might be saved from famine and certain death. And all of that points forward to an even greater favored son, who after proclaiming God's revelation, would be rejected by his own envious people, betrayed to death for pieces of silver, and actually slaughtered. Instead of a goat slaughtered in his place, he would be slaughtered in our place. And his death would be presented to his father that we might have reconciliation and life with the father. This, this becomes even clearer on the heels of Good Friday. Because in the mocking voices of the brothers, oh, you'll be king, will you? We'll bow down to you? Well, we'll kill you, and then we'll see how far those dreams go. We see the mocking voices of the Jewish people and the Roman soldiers. Oh, you're king, are you? We'll see how good of a king you are after dying on a cross. So in all of this, we remember, in reading the hard circumstances in Genesis 37, that God himself entered the pain and difficulty of, of the world to bear the primary problem that plagues us on his own shoulders. His work doesn't leave us sitting as strangers in a promise yet to be fulfilled, but fulfills every promise. See, the Bible isn't just about, you know, God in this general sovereignty. It's not primarily about, like, his sovereign will, like God having his way in some kind of a general sense. Like, there's this God, and he's sovereign, and he will have his way in this general sense. But rather, it's about his sovereign grace. As, his as in his sovereignty, he works out his promises of grace towards sinners like us. In Genesis 37, the reason we can see it, that we continue to see suffering, stems from Genesis 3. And yet in the midst of Genesis 3, we have this promise that the Lord now points us forward to. And so we can say with assurance, knowing, knowing that our God isn't just a God who says, well, deal with the evil. I'm sovereign. Deal with the evil and the hardships and the suffering. I mean, I'm kind of conveniently separated from it up here and transcendent, but deal with the evil and suffering. Our God is a God who stepped into it and bore it in a way that we'll never understand so that we could know him and be reconciled to him. And so because of that, we can say with assurance now, so is, is it good? That last line, is it good, the, the um, sovereign will of God, deep in, his un, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and work his, works his sovereign will? Is that sovereign will good? 
We can say, ye fearful saints, fresh courage, take the clouds, ye so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. If we respond to this with this blind unbelief that just scans God's work all the time, looking for an answer, it fails over and over again. God is his own interpreter. We'll see in Genesis 50. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And Lord, we know that where you've made it plain to us is at the cross. Where though we suffer and endure hardship, you bore all suffering and hardship on your shoulders so that you... Lord, can redeem and restore, and one day we'll renew everything back to yourself. Remind us of that even as we come to the table this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.